Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, your host here, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan, editor of our blog, commander of the newsletter, occasional podcast host. How you doing, Ben? I'm okay. So at Stack Overflow, we have a ton of focus these days, a whole Tiger team internally thinking about how we can make the most of the recent wave of generative AI models, LLMs, large language models, and what we can do with our data that would help to better serve folks on the public platform who are coming with questions and looking for answers or help folks who are using like our team's product and have a big knowledge base inside of their company. So that means a lot of considerations of like, well, how do we train a model? Who should we go with? Which model should we use? Where is our data safe? Should we build vectors, databases and vector search? And you know, like what are the trade-offs in terms of cost and latency, quality, all kinds of things like that. So one of the companies that I saw making some news in this space and obviously being utilized by lots of folks was Mosaic. And so we wanted to invite them on. Today, we are lucky enough to have two guests with us. Jonathan, who is the chief scientist over at Mosaic, and Abby, who is an NLP architect. So I wanted to say welcome to both of you to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thank you for having us. Um, so Jonathan, let's start with you. What brought you into this world? You know, uh, I think a lot of people maybe outside of tech, didn't think too much about AI or certainly about chatbots till recently, but how long have you been working in this field and what kind of led you to where you are today? Yeah, so I've been in this field about five years now, maybe a little more than that at this point. And, you know, I kind of wandered my way into it during my PhD at MIT a few years ago where I was working on cryptography at the time. And, you know, just the idea that you could accomplish tasks that it's very hard to actually write a computer program to solve got me very excited. Mm. Yeah, this kind of idea of approximation, the idea that, you know, neural networks can do all this fuzzy computation. And, you know, I ended up getting my way into Mosaic a little ironically. Um, I got a cold email from our now CEO saying, you know, nice paper, want to do a startup? <laughs> um, and that's how I ended up at Mosaic. So, you know, definitely check your spam folder, everybody. That's my recommendation to you about, you know, having these fun experiences. Okay. Arvix is the new job board, apparently. And so as chief scientist, what does your day-to-day look like? Give folks who are listening just a little bit of background on sort of like, yeah, like what, where is Mosaic positioned within, you know, this rapidly changing ecosystem? And, you know, what are you focused on? Are you managing a team? Are you doing research? Are you thinking about how to train the next set of models? What is your day-to-day? So my day-to-day, you know, usually I wake up and then I start going into meetings and then, you know, six o'clock rolls around and I finally, <laughs> no. I, so, um, you know, I supervise our research team. So we have you know, 15 or 20 researchers now focused on trying to understand not only how to train the latest, greatest stuff, but how to do so in a really easy and cost-effective way. Our company slogan is to make deep learning efficient and accessible for everyone. And we really, truly mean everyone. That means driving down cost, and that means finding paths through this space that anyone can use and be successful. Our overall business is that, you know, to a first approximation, you can think of us as, you know, training large models for contract. We aren't trying to train one model to rule them all. We're a big believer that the world will be dominated by 100,000 models, each with a specialized domain. You know, lots of specialized models and proprietary data doing very specific things. We're not believers in, you know, the idea of one model to rule them all. And so with that in mind, you know, our goal is to enable, if there are going to be 100,000 models, 100,000 people have to be able to make those models. So cost Mm -hmm. has to be low enough that people can do this. The tools have to be good enough that people can do this. And, you know, the kinds of things that you can get away with when you're at a big research lab, when, you know, everybody's got a PhD in machine learning and you can tolerate some pain, that's not going to cut it at scale. 
So we think a lot about how to just reduce those barriers to entry and make things work really, really well for everybody. Very cool. And Abi, how about yourself? What brought you into this world and what do you focus on day to day? Yeah, um, so actually out, out of college, I went to a company called Cerebral Research and worked on like ML hardware. And I was working kind of with the algorithms team there, thinking about different ways, actually very similar to Mosaic, to reduce the cost of training models using the hardware. I actually had a similarly interesting intro to Mosaic. I met Namit on Twitter <laughs> and then um, kind of had my interview during that whole COVID era of like, you know, Zoom interviews and stuff. Mm. And it ended up being really interesting because a company focused purely on like algorithms and research to reduce training using any hardware, like whatever turns out to be best. That was kind of the pitch that joined up. Um, so the, the company has grown a lot since then. We started off doing kind of basic efficiency research on lots of different models. Now we're really focused on the end-to-end of like helping people actually train their own like LLMs that are useful for them. And so a lot of what I work on nowadays is trying to optimize not just the training efficiency of our stack, you know, kind of like how many dollars does it take to train like a 70 billion parameter model, but also trying to deliver in a way such that even like data scientists at like larger corporations who aren't necessarily like ML research scientists, right, can still actually train these models on their proprietary data and build private models that are good for them. So, you know, when we hear about the newsmaker LLMs, we always hear they take, you know, millions and millions of dollars to train X number of trillion parameters or whatever it is. How do you, you all actually reduce the costs? Is it smaller models? Is it better algorithms? What's the secret sauce that you can give away? Yeah, I would say like, you know, in terms of like driving down costs, a big portion of it is actually just like a little bit of myth busting and making the software more accessible. About half a year ago, sometime in September, October, um, we started publishing these kind of tables of like, here's like the real cost to actually train, like say, a GPT-3 quality model or like a chinchilla mm. quality model. Um, mm. And even just like using the right software in the right way, it turns out it's not millions of dollars. It's often like hundreds of thousands or less. On top of that, our research team does actually work on a lot of the kind of algorithms, like basically to figure out, can we actually optimize in fewer steps or with less data or smaller models trained longer? Yeah, I think, you know, we've put out a lot of pretty like astounding looking speed up numbers over the years. Everything from, you know, ResNet 50 on ImageNet for like 7x cheaper, recently did Stable Diffusion 2.0 for I think 6x cheaper than what Stability quoted it at. And, you know, I wish I could tell you the, you know, the actual secret thing that made all that really fast. The answer is 5% here, 5% there. Mm. It's really blood, sweat, and tears of just an incremental improvement and incremental improvement. And it adds up really quickly to get to these huge numbers. Right. And I think you'll see the same thing from us on large language models over the next few months. You know, it's going to be a little of this, a little of that, and the costs are going to drop pretty significantly to get to great capabilities. Because I'm the content guy, I did go check out your blog before this, and I loved the thing, you know, Transstable Diffusion for 160000 then you put the big, now on sale, X through it, now Transstable Diffusion for just 50000 So bringing down the cost between part one and part three of that blog post even. Yeah, it actually went down 25K in the first few days after that blog post. We found a bug that had made things even slower. So, nice. you know, it just keeps coming. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. funny, too. Every time we publish this, someone ends up reaching out to us here through Twitter or Slack saying, like, hey, do you try this? And we find another speed up and another one. <laughs> right, <laughs> so it just right. keeps adding on. All right. So I know you, right, like you said, you can't give away the secret sauce. And some of it is just, you know, sort of this accretion of, you know, small things here and there. But let's go high level for a second. A client comes to you. They work in finance or they work in law or they work in, you know, stack overflow. We have a big data set and, you know, we want to understand what's the best way to get an in-house model where we feel like our data is secure. And I think one of the other things you said, you know, we own the weight. So it's like, we're the one who's going to be able to, if we wanted later to, you know, even port this to another vendor. 
what are the basic steps we're going to go through to get that done? And without giving away how you do it, you know, where in those steps are you looking to maximize efficiency or cost or speed or various things like that? Yeah, so Avi has a checklist for this. So, you know, there's a legit process. Yeah, so I think like a lot of times we try to scope with the customer sort of like, you know, what are the constraints in terms of inference? You know, like, are you looking for a size model, a 70 billion parameter model or 7 billion or 3 billion or so on? And then also like questions of like, what's your training budget? How much data you have? And we've kind of done this process several times and each time with a new customer, we learn more. Um, and we just get better and the quicker at it. What I say is like, we usually try to kind of scale you up towards this kind of like largest or hero run that you're targeting. And along the way, you know, we're measuring the eval metrics you care about. We're letting you know ahead of time what the costs are going to be, what are the right optimization settings and stuff. So by the time it gets to the actual hero run, it pretty much goes smoothly. And we really emphasize this kind of stability with our training. You know, like in, in our latest like kind of MPT 7B blog, thanks to our whole stack, we're actually able to train these models without any human intervention. And that might be a bit out of left field for people who aren't like training LMs every day, but a lot of times the hardware crashes or you have network issues or optimization problems. We spent a lot of time trying to debug all those so you can actually kind of hit enter, go to sleep, nobody needs to be babysitting the run, <laughs> and it actually like, gets uh-huh. to where you want to go. I think one of the things a lot of folks are thinking about, and we're thinking about too, um, in terms of the proprietary data that people want to train, train the uh, LLMs on, how do you make sure that that's not visible to, to you or your team that's protected? It's pretty simple. We'll run it on your GPUs and so you don't have to worry about it. We can set up all of our infrastructure within your cloud VPC or even on-prem if you really want to. Um, so you don't even have to worry about it. And if you don't have GPUs, mm-hmm. we have some of our own that you can use. And the idea is that we never store any of your data. We've worked very hard to write high-performance streaming libraries so that your data will get streamed in, trained on the model. The checkpoints will get streamed out. Nothing is stored locally and everything is ephemeral. So, you know, even in those scenarios where you really need to use our infrastructure, we've still taken every precaution to make sure your data is safe. I don't want to store your data because that's risk for me. Right, right. I'd rather, you know, you get an awesome model and I have as little involvement as possible. All right. So let me phrase this a different way. You know, you're sort of saying, well, it depends on what you want, three, seven, 70, you know, billion parameters and stuff like that. But what if the client doesn't know? You know, one of the things that's been interesting now is seeing as we look at, you know, different approaches and, you know, what came out of Facebook with Llama Alpaca, like, a smaller model that uses a pre-trained set from an earlier, bigger model can sometimes get to parity. So if the client doesn't know, do you give them a recommendation or do you have a viewpoint on sort of like, all right, well, based on, you know, your data set and your budget, here's what we would, you know, do you sort of give them a menu of options or some guidance about how they would do it? That's question one. And question two is, yeah, what do you make of the really rapid changes in this sort of size, cost and complexity needed to create a model that can be quite capable because it's standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will, you know, the the training that's come before it. You know, to that first question of, you know, how do I tell someone how big to go? It's actually really nice if you start to look at the scaling laws, the cost of training the next step up increases quadratically. Mm. So you can kind of climb the ladder. Start with the small one. See if that's useful to you. If, you know, Mm. you're getting good results, you're seeing some progress and you're seeing return on investment, try the bigger one and spend a little more. And if you're seeing return on investment in that, try the next bigger one and, you know, spend a little more. I don't ever want a customer to come to me and say, like, I'm going to spend $10 million in this model right off the bat. Right. What I'd much rather see is, you know, let's take it one step at a time. Let's run into all the issues at the smallest possible scale. We're going to run into them. There are always devils in the details with data sets and evaluation and all sorts of other fun stuff that, you know, is the, the real data science and machine learning problem. And keep going until you decide it's no longer worth it to you. And 
so far, I don't think we've had a customer who stopped yet. You know, they keep <laughs> finding value and going bigger. So, you know, right, I'm right. sure that won't be true forever. Like there is some point at which it's no longer worth it. But, you know, stop when you stop seeing return on investment. And, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully for both of us, that's a long way away because that means we're doing good business and you're getting something worthwhile. And Abby, just to sort of clarify the second question, I've seen a lot of interesting posts out there of people saying, hey, look, I got GPT-4 running on a Pixel phone, on a laptop. You know, hey, look, you know, I was able to sort of take this thing that, you know, when, as Ryan pointed out, the company was originally creating it, required years and tens of millions and all this, you know, human reinforcement. But you can make, you know, a copy of it, a scaled down version of it, uh, something that was trained on the training of it and get some interesting results. So what do you make of that? And where's that leading us? Yeah, totally. I think especially with seeing lots of people taking like the llama models or taking like data trained off of chat GPT like response and stuff and building these like smaller versions that work quite well. I think what we're seeing is that people have like different independent niches that they care about. Mm. And when it comes to those independent niches, you're able to accomplish the quality you want in a much more like cheap or economical fashion, right? You don't necessarily need like the one model that can do everything. Um, because most people aren't trying to do everything like in their applications or stuff, right? Some people just want like a chatbot assistant. Some people want something that can write stories for them or something like that. I think uh, some challenges that come with all of those parts of the ecosystem, right? The llama models and even the chat GPT data, right? Is a lot of it's not commercially viable, right? Like I think it's really exciting that people are building on top of these. But one of the things that we're trying to do is actually deliver some of these products in like commercially licensed ways, right? So the MPT models, for instance, we open source those for free and they are commercially viable, almost kind of like a drop-in replacement for like the Llama 70. And you can imagine too that, especially with our inference servers that we just launched like a few weeks ago, right? We could also potentially deliver some of these things where, yes, you actually can train off of like the generated data from our models and stuff like that too. So, I mean, I think we're really excited about all these directions. We're trying to figure out how can we go from the, the prototype phase where like lots of people playing at home to like actually enterprises using these things. We talked about uh, folks scaling up their models, you know, when you, you have the difference between like a 7 billion parameter and 70 billion parameter, is the change visible or the new abilities is become more accurate? And what exactly are the like the watermarks where you see that? I think there's a bit of a misconception embedded in that question, which is saying 7 billion or 70 billion doesn't tell you enough information to evaluate the model in any way. It's entirely possible to spend more in a 7 billion parameter model than a 70 billion parameter model train it for more flops and have a better result. Avi has started doing this thing where he just describes not the size of the model or even the length of the training run. He just describes it in dollar amounts now. He will say, (laughs) you know, we're going to train a $50,000 model. And whether you train a 70 billion parameter model for, you know, a certain number of steps or a 7 billion parameter model for way more steps, honestly, the differences aren't that huge. Generally, you know, Chinchilla tells us there's a sweet spot for the right model size for any amount of training. But the penalties aren't that big for going off of that. And so, you know, 7B or 70B, you know, now you got to tell me what data was it trained on and how long am I training? If you train a 70B for one step, yeah, my 7B that I trained for a trillion steps is going to be way better. Um, So, you know, there's context there. Yeah. That's interesting because, you know, when I hear about language models, they're always like X number of parameters. Like, so why do people think that parameters are are valuable metrics? Because they used to be. Back in the days before we really understood the dynamics of this and really kind of, you know, the llama models changed the conversation a bit by showing us we could do things that were somewhat suboptimal and still get really great results, but results that are in a much smaller package that we can really use for inference. 
So that was a real, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a paradigm shift, but it was nice for everybody to realize that, you know, just because there's something optimal doesn't mean that it's that bad to be suboptimal. Um, and being optimal for one thing, training, can be very suboptimal for another thing, inference. Yeah. I saw an interesting little chart from Andre Karpathy that was talking about how you would evaluate, you know, the utility of a model compared to, say, talking to a human being. And it was kind of like zero shot prompting, asking a stranger a random question, you know, multi-step prompting, you know, asking an expert a reasonably thought out question, shot prompting with chain of reasoning, you know, now you're really talking to a college professor who can help you. And then this is in a separate sort of modality, but then they were saying, right, you know, the amount of fine tuning, the amount of flops, the amount of reinforcement learning with human feedback is going to get you better quality. So what I think you're saying, right, is we can't just talk about size anymore or even flaps anymore. There's different things that can lead to a great outcome. And maybe it depends also, right, on what you're looking for. Something that's super generalized to the whole universe of a chatbot that knows everything or something that's really good at law and is going to help these lawyers, you know, save X number of hours a day. So do y'all have models internally that are sort of yours that you're building that you think are interesting, which then people can use in a commercially viable way as opposed to just, you know, training other folks stuff? Yeah, we, we do both. Yeah, and I'll just say, yeah, the, the first one of these that you're seeing is kind of the MPT one that we released. So it's yeah. sort of like, you know, some of our early customers would train their whole models from scratch. You can see like Replit doing this for code and stuff. But there's another group of customers who would love to start from like a relatively strong starting checkpoint and continue from there. And that's that's kind of like what our 7B MPT model is. Yeah, I kind of think of the 7B as a bit of a demo track. You know, we train a lot of models for contract, which means many of them don't see the light of day. They're being used for internal use cases at a lot of big companies. So how do people know that we can actually train good models? Mm-hmm. You know, we put out that 7B to say like, you know, hey, look, we're serious. The 7B, you know, I'll say is the baby of the family. You know, we shared that <laughs> one with the world there. You know, right. it definitely has some bigger, badder siblings that are available for our customers. But, you know, really, it's a it's a demo. A lot of folks do want to train from scratch. They want to have complete control over the pre-training data. They may disagree with one choice that we've made. Everybody disagrees on these choices because nobody really knows what the right thing to do is legally or just from a quality perspective. And it's, you know, it's mm. nice for us to be able to show the world what we've got and give customers the option. Right. And that one, it's licensed for commercial use. And I think another thing you had said was that it, it can handle a ton of tokens, right? So like if somebody says, well, I want to bring in, you know, my company's entire documentation for this code base or something, it might be able to handle it, whereas that's not always true for some of the other models that are out there. Yeah, we're built for heavy duty fine tuning. You know, I hate the word fine tuning. I start calling it further pre-training at this point, because <laughs> when you have 100 billion okay. tokens, is it really fine tuning at that point? And they're built for long context lengths. We chose to use, you know, Alibi in such a way that basically you can use as long of a context as you can fit on the GPU. I think internally we play it up into the 80,000s. So uh, when the Get your thoughts on on some of the speculative stuff I've heard. Every time I open up my Google News feed, you know, there's people talking about artificial general intelligence or wringing their hands about the singularity. What's y'all's take on the general intelligence speculation? Like, are we developing sentient computers? Avi knows that I have very strong opinions on this one, so I will share them. Then Avi can walk this back, so I don't, you know, get tomatoes thrown at my windows. The metaphor that I hear among my friends a lot is that. Using neural nets to get to AGI is like building a ladder to the moon. Mm. You know, just because we're making progress and getting high in the sky does not mean that, you know, that's how you get from point A to point B. That is the polite version of what I think of the conversation. Yeah, I feel similar to Jonathan. I'd say like a more tractable thing is just we're getting really hard to evaluate these models, I think. Maybe that's like a slightly like worrisome thing for me. 
we've gone to a point where, you know, trying to ask like general knowledge questions, we're running out of data sets for that. At some point, we have to evaluate our models just by comparing outputs from model A to B. And eventually, I guess, from model A to B to humans, I think we'll have to do soon as well. So I think that part is tricky, but like, you know, maybe like we're not asking challenging enough things. These models have to come up with more and more challenging tasks to evaluate them properly. But uh, I, I don't worry too much about the, the AGI endpoint. All right. I have one more question. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about, you've shown off, uh, Jonathan, as you mentioned, you know, sort of the baby and customers who come in and see other versions. And Avi had, you know, sort of said, let's not discuss this in terms of just, you know, fossil talk about in terms of cost. And when Google showed off, you know, their stuff at IO, they had these four models, right? Like they were all built on the same one, but they were different sizes for, you know, a smartphone versus maybe a home studio setup versus an enterprise customer or something like that. Another thing they mentioned that that I've heard, you know, can kind of produce interesting jumps in performance behavior, emergent, you know, abilities is multimodal. Do y'all work on anything that's multimodal or just LLM and just text-based? Oh, we're all over multimodal. You know, I know that our LLMs tend to get the limelight. We have a stellar computer vision team. Mm. You know, you just mentioned stable diffusion for, you know, under 50K. That's a multimodal model right there. You know, all it is is GPT-4 multimodal is text and image to text. This is text and image Mm. to image. It's not a far cry from one to the other, to say the least. Um, I don't want to say too much more than that, but, you know, we are very lucky that we have phenomenal computer vision researchers and phenomenal NLP researchers. And boy, would it be a shame if we didn't work together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very cool. There, There is one other thing I think worth mentioning here, which is, you know, I think we're at a bit of, you know, a challenging moment for the open source and academic research community. Mm. You know, I've seen a lot of amazing labs that in past years shared incredible innovation back and forth and really enabled us to get to this point where we have this incredible technology. You know, labs that I personally spent a lot of time at during my formative years closed down. You know, they're not going to talk about what they do. There aren't a lot of us left in the industry world that are still doing things openly. Um, You know, there's us, maybe our friends at Stability and Together and Hugging Face. I think Mosaic is one of the biggest open industry labs left. um, And that's because we have 15 or 20 researchers and we're at least we're still open. So it is a challenging moment, and I think it's really important for us that we continue to share what we learn. We continue to put things out there and try to support the community, especially now. As far as I'm concerned, I just think we need to keep in mind how valuable the open source community is. And I I hope Mm -hmm. nobody here underestimates the power of the open source community in academic research. Um, To my friends at some of the bigger labs, don't underestimate the open source world, and it's much easier to be a part of it than to fight against it. Well, that's a good message for Stack Overflow, so we'll end on that. All right, everybody, as we do this time of the show, I want to shout out a member of the community who came on and helped spread some knowledge. A lifeboat badge was awarded to Sing Motor on May 13th. They came and found a question with a negative score, gave it a new answer. Now that answer has a score of 20 or more, and the question has a score of three or more. How do I remove columns with too many missing values in Python? Well, if this has been a problem for you, Sing Motor has the answer and has helped over 45,000 people. So appreciate you dropping the knowledge. I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Reach us with questions or suggestions for the podcast, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I am the editor of the blog here at Stack Overflow, which you can find at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at rthordonovan. I'm Avi Benegala. I'm the NLP architect here at Mosaic. And um, if you're interested in learning what we do, check out our blog at mosaicml.com. And I'm Jonathan Frankel. I'm chief scientist. And what Avi said.
Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.